Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank. Today, we're going to speak with Megan Kate Nelson, the author of The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. This is her third book. Dr. Nelson is a full-time writer, but has taught at places like Harvard and Brown. Thanks so much for being here, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We are going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. The Civil War is often told as a battle between North and South, right? The Union, made up of 23 states, which were mostly from Maine to Minnesota and then down to Maryland. The Confederacy is made up of 11 states, Virginia on down and across to Texas. And then there were border states that, of course, Abraham Lincoln did his darndest to keep on his side. The two sides duke it out in an unbelievably bloody war. It results in a slave-free society and cements one nation moving forward. But out west, we have California, Nevada, Oregon. Between California and Texas, though, are huge swaths of land that make up what is today Arizona, New Mexico, north of that, Colorado and Utah. So, Dr. Nelson, explain, why do we need to understand what was happening in those areas while the North and South were going at it? And that's another way of asking why the West has so often been written out of most histories of the Civil War, even the so-called definitive ones. Right, yes, this... this That latter question is actually the one that prompted me to start this project in the first place, because I'm from Colorado, and when I started studying Civil War history for my previous book, I was shocked to find out that there were actual battles between Union and Confederate troops in New Mexico. And growing up in Colorado, I had never heard about that. I never knew that Colorado soldiers were involved in that conflict on the Union side. Uh, and that they had come to Colorado as part of a a gold rush in 1858-59, which rarely gets talked about. And, you know, there's no real memorialization in the landscape either. Um, You can go and visit New Mexico and Colorado and Arizona and not even know that there are actually preserved sites of Civil War engagement in the landscape. And so that question really drove me. I wanted to know why this huge region, which had had been a center of discussion before the war um, about the expansion of slavery. I mean, people were always talking about the West after the Mexican-American War. What are we gonna do with these new territories? Will slavery be expanded into them? Where will there be a transcontinental railroad? Uh, All of the discussion and all of the debate that drove the North and the South apart before the war was about the West. And yet, Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, so much has been written um, about the Civil War. I mean, so much, that's like the understatement of the year. I mean, millions and millions of books probably and and tens of millions and maybe billions of words have been written. But at what point did you realize that this needed a thesis, that this needed a book, that it wasn't just that things hadn't been written, it was that things needed to be written, is that, that this was consequential into in, in as far as how the Civil War went? Right. Well, the, the more I looked into it, the more interested I became not only in the Union-Confederate conflict, which is about controlling 
the West and also particularly California for its gold mines and its Pacific ports. So that was about funding the war, right? We, we don't often talk about how much wars cost, um, but it costs <laughs> a lot of money uh, to fight a war, right? It both Not till the end. They only tell you at the end, right? <laughs> right. When the bill comes due. Um, but they, you know, both the North and the South wanted control of the West for that reason. Um, so I was interested in that as part of the larger story of the war. But I was also interested as I started to kind of dig around in how prominent indigenous communities were in not only engaging with Union and Confederate troops in that initial conflict in the first years, but also then as they became the targets of Union campaigns in the rest of the war, like from 63 on, um, and the book actually goes till 68, which is kind of longer than, than you would usually think of the Civil War lasting. But this is a component, I mean, there have been military historians who have talked about the war in the West along these lines, but no one has really brought these stories together, the story of the Union conflict, the Union Confederate conflict, and then the, the Union campaigns in particular against Native peoples, and how that was part of a larger story of the war that really shows us it was a continental conflict, that it was about North and South, of course, and it was about emancipation and ending slavery, but it was also about exerting control of the West, which required, it necessitated either the extermination or the removal of native peoples from those lands. Let this be a lesson that anybody who comes up with something new to say about the Civil War then has to write a book. And so uh, <laughs> no pressure on any of you out there, but, but, but that's impressive. Um, you say that Lincoln had to keep control of the West in order to win the war. When does Abraham Lincoln realize that? Well, I think that the Lincoln and the Republican Party had always been interested in the West. I mean, the Republican Party forms in part uh, in order to argue for free territories west of the Mississippi River and to really um, base a whole political platform on that, on internal improvements, on a transcontinental railroad, and on homesteading. And we see this in their platform in 1860. And, you know, their, Lincoln's first goal was to keep control of the West with devoting as little manpower to that process as possible because he needed, uh, all, you know, he needed most of the soldiers to come East and fight in those really big theaters of the war that we're most used to talking about, right? Um, but there were already U.S. Army regulars, as they call them, kind of professional soldiers, posted across the West in, in garrisons. And so they, it was fairly easy for the commanders in the West to kind of bring all of those troops together to defend against this Confederate invasion. Um, once the Confederates had been kind of kicked out uh, in the spring and summer of 1862, I found it very interesting that this is the moment when Lincoln and the Republican Party, who had a huge majority in Congress after secession, they passed two measures that they had been trying to pass for years in the 1850s, the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railway Act. And, you know, you might think, why did they bother doing this during wartime? Why would it matter? Why aren't they devoting all of their time, all of their resources to just fighting the South and trying to win this war. And they did devote the bulk of their time and their resources to that effort, but they were also thinking about the West. They were thinking about the future and they were thinking about establishing their control over the West as a, a free territory that was free of enslaved people, but then also free of native people because what the home, both the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railway Act did 
was it made it possible for Lincoln and the Republican Party to just take land from Native people. Uh, they didn't even need a treaty to do it. They could just take land as eminent domain and then convert it into public land and sell it to either farmers or ranchers or to railroad companies. One of the things that strikes me about your book and about the story that we're talking about here is that there is, it reminds me of a before and after kind of screenshot, like in like a, uh, like you see in a commercial or something like that, like, you know, before cleaning and after cleaning. Um, and in this case, it just strikes me that, um, that the before and after of what the far West looked like um, after the civil war is incredibly different, but let's talk a little bit about the before, because I think, and even this show is certainly guilty of it because this is an America centric show. Um, and we tend to talk about and focus on the North and South as, as I've said, and we, we tend to look at this from the, the, pro, the, the, the perspective of America outward, but let's go to what at that time was a foreign land and a foreign nation and a foreign, you know, group of, I don't know if maybe foreign is not the right word, but these were not, you know, under full American control yet. Um, the territories, the places we're talking about, the far West, who was living there in the land that we now call Arizona, Colorado, Utah, um, New Mexico, who was living there and what was going on there? Let's talk about it from their perspective. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there was, a very interesting, diverse array of communities living in the what we would call the Southwest. And do we know how many people? Um, probably something around between a hundred and two hundred thousand. On all that land. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's a lot so of land. Very, I've driven through there. It's a lot of land. Yes. <laughs> and and when you've driven through there, you realize the vast distances that these armies and these indigenous communities had to cover. Um, you know. To, to engage with one another, right? Um, so who was there, very, yeah, please. Yeah, with very few water sources in between. That's a, that's a key component, right, uh, of this landscape. So, uh, but there, in the 1840s, basically the Southwest is under the control of indigenous polities, uh, Comanches, Apaches in particular, um, with many different bands, um, some who were allied, some who were not, um, or working independently. Um, the Odom peoples of, of southern Arizona as well. Um, most of these territories uh, crossed the border into to Mexico. Um, and if you if you think of the West not as a, a series of borders that are meeting, but a kind of layered system, so that you have a kind of layer of indigenous lands and territories and their perceptions of where their lands ended and and other groups uh, began, and then you have a kind of Spanish Mexican uh, layer kind of put uh, on top of that almost um, if we're moving kind of upward in time um, and then the Americans come in and overlay another um, border on top of that right it's all overlapping and in the 1840s and, and into the 1850s really indigenous peoples had control of that entire landscape uh, there were kind of outposts and cities and um, presidios uh, that were manned by soldiers and also citizens um, from Mexico. Um, and they were, at that point, it was northern Mexico. In 1848 and then 1853, that all changes and the border moves south, kind of leaps over um, about 50,000 Hispanos uh, who then are considered 
to be citizens if they elect to be of the United States. And it didn't just um, move south, ma- south magically. There was, uh, you right. know, there was a war, you know, that- uh, Exactly, that fought, exactly. Right. There was a, a war that the United States won. It was an uh, explicitly a war of imperial conquest. And this created a lot of then tensions between Americans and uh, Hispano New Mexicans, Mexicans still living south of the border, and then also indigenous communities, particularly Chiricahua Apaches, who who figure most prominently in the book itself. Um, so, um, the Americans are not Anglo Americans are not a huge influence um, in terms of numbers by the time of the Civil War, but they are uh, a huge influence politically because now that this whole area is within the United States borders and there are territorial governments, that means that Anglo-Americans are kind of in control politically. Of course, they were not in control in many other, <laughs> in many other ways. Um, and then further north of there, there's also a, a, a very large Mormon community in Utah uh, from the mid 1840s onward that launched its own rebellion against the United States in the late 1850s. And then increasingly after 1849 and then 1858 in Colorado, tens of thousands of gold miners who are from both the North and the South and parts of the Midwest. And so this is a, these are communities and this was what really impressed me. And this also goes to your question of why does this need a book? There are so many different communities and their stories are overlapping and um, you know, kind of crashing into each other at various moments uh, and really changing the history of the West. And the Civil War brings a very large contingent of soldiers, U.S. soldiers, into that mix. Uh, you know, the number of, of U.S. troops in the Southwest was just so much larger in the 1860s than it ever had been before. And that's a real sea change, especially since it didn't, then launched this new phase of campaigns against uh, Native peoples and, and their forced removal onto reservations. This question just occurred to me, and I hate when questions just occur to me because it means I have to squeeze another one out uh, later on in the show. But this just occurred to me when you mentioned uh, the Mexican-American War um, and how that border uh, moved south. How um, We know that Abraham Lincoln spoke out against that war, and I believe it was his first speech that he gave Mm -hmm. to Congress when when he spent his one term in Congress. Uh, This is in 1846, I think, right? 1846 Mm -hmm. and 48. how did how did Lincoln's perspective as being anti-war um, over the Mexican-American War color or change or influence his opinion of what needed to happen out west during the Civil War? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think his the whole basis of his and other Republicans' anti-war stance is that they saw the Mexican-American War as explicitly a war, a war of conquest to gain land to expand slavery. That was, they, they saw it as a fairly transparent move by Southerners to expand their land base because uh, remember that already the, they were kind of still abiding by the, the Mason-Dixon line rule, right? So if they brought in this huge amount of territory from Mexico, that was all gonna fall south of the line. And that meant, that the South would be able to establish slavery there. That meant that they would create new territories that would then become states, and then they would have more political power because they would have more representatives and more senators in Congress. And you know, by that point, by the 1840s, uh, the Northerners were already you know, outpopulating 
Southerners. And so they were really worried about sustaining their, you know, it's always about sustaining their political power. How much power do they have in Congress, right? This is, this is the root of everything that happens. Um, Even today. Here today. Um, and so, and it was the same uh, situation in the 1840s and 50s. And so Republicans and Northerners, a lot of Northerners saw this war as a pretty transparent effort to increase the power of Southern slaveholders in Congress. And so that was really the core of his anti-war stance. Um, Lincoln was never what we would consider to be, um, or what they sort of thought of at that time as pro-Indian. Um, if there was one thing that united white Northerners and Southerners during the Civil War period, it was the belief that either Native peoples were just going to vanish naturally um, through disease epidemics and warfare and other you know, forms of eradication, um, or they were just going to have to be removed onto reservations and civilized into becoming Americans. They would have to farm, they would have to be converted to Christianity, and they would have to learn English. And both Northerners and Southerners shared that vision. I mean, I think we see, we see very similar language and very similar intent in the Apache extermination order that John Baylor issues in March of 1862, right before he leaves, uh, which basically ordered his men to lure Apaches into a parlay and kill all the men and enslave the women and children. And that order looks very similar to James Carleton's orders uh, a year later, sending Kit Carson and Joseph Rodman West uh, into Southern and Northern Arizona uh, to fight and possibly exterminate all of the men of those indigenous communities and then to imprison the women and the children. Um, so had a different valence because enslavement was not involved, but it was the exact same kind of intent, which was to clear the West of native peoples so that white Americans could settle those lands and develop them as ranchers or miners or, or business people. Well, this is why we do this show folks, because uh, the headlines are seldom, the headlines seldom reveal what, what is really going on and what really happened. And this is why we love our historians. Um, what you mentioned the gold miners um, who were headed to California, what, um, what investment in terms of manpower and foreign policy had been made in the territories that were there by the union and also the Confederacy, um, they were interested in having these paths to California potentially to get there and get the gold, right? Talk about the influence of economics here along with the political side of this. Sure, yeah. So, you know, the, the gold rush of 49 that brought uh, all of these Anglo-Americans through the West and to the California coast, that was the first of many sea changes in the West. And that was the first time that many indigenous communities actually encountered Anglo-Americans. They may have met a couple trappers, maybe some, some uh, scouts or um, you know, folks like Kit Carson who were in the West actually relatively early in the 1830s and 40s, but it was really that gold rush that sparked that Anglo-American migration to the West. And most of them came overland because it was incredibly expensive and risky to go by boat, which you had to kind of sail down and then um, portage across Panama and then come up the, come up the Pacific. That's a long way. That's it's a, a very long, way. long way. That's a long way. And uh, expensive and uh, had a reputation for be, being kind of disease ridden also, um, 
with mosquitoes and yellow fever and everything. So uh, most people came overland and when they did, they were crossing through indigenous homelands and uh, various indigenous communities had different kinds of responses to that. Some charged tolls, some made treaties, some attacked wagon trains. Um, there were various kinds of policies. Uh, but what that gold rush did is it, you know, brought the huge populations. Um, it leads directly to the statehood of California, which brings, you know, California into the union as part of a compromise. Um, and then the, the gold rush of, of 1858-59 in Colorado brings, again, as I said, tens of thousands of young men into the West at a time when they were the perfect age and had the perfect seasoning to enter the Union Army. Um, in defense of the West, right? They had already been sleeping outside for two years. Like it didn't, you know, they were, they had already been kind of up at high elevations and dealing with um, violence in their communities. So they didn't think it was a very big deal to sign up for the war. They thought it was going to be kind of great fun then to, uh, to fight the, the Texans and, and push them out of the territory. Um, but they all were there uh, for gold. They were all there um, for that dream of gold that was extremely powerful during this period. Um, part of that, I think, was because you never quite knew when you were going to strike it rich or if you would. And there was this sense of great possibility among mostly Anglo-Americans, although there were significant numbers of Mexican miners in a lot of these communities as well, and miners from, from a lot of other countries, including Europe. Um, but Anglo-Americans kind of predominated. And so they established towns and mining camps that became kind of centers of political power for Anglo-Americans. And then usually it was those mining camps that were agitating for territorial status. And this was important. I mean, there, so there's the economic side where everyone wants gold, not only because gold in itself is very valuable, but also gold backs the value of paper money. Right, so if you have a lot of gold supply, your economy is more stable. And so, you know, having all of that gold is, is very useful for both sides, um, not only as kind of pure payment, but also to kind of boost other areas of the economy. So that was part of the economic vision, but it was also a political vision because really the Confederates thought that they might be able to woo a lot of Southern miners to their side. And there were a lot of kind of fistfights and, and shootouts at flagpoles in Western towns, including Taos, including Denver, uh, where the Confederates, you know, pro-Southerners are trying to pull down the U.S. flag from the flagpole and, and pro-U.S. Uh, people are trying to put it back up, right? Um, in most of those places, um, the, the pro-Northern groups were victorious. Um, but that just creates political stability for each side and really and benefits the Union ultimately, right? Because again, they want those territories to come in for the Union uh, and they, because they will ultimately become states that will give that, give Republicans more representatives and more senators. Always about the, the, the power, the political power. <laughs> yeah. It's um, all about money, money and political power. <laughs> so we've got, a, we've got a political investment. We've got a financial investment. I want to ask about the military investment, the manpower, the flesh and blood. Um, you say in the book that the union had to keep troops in New Mexico um, to stop slavery from taking root there. 
the key is to stop this from becoming Confederate. Uh, why was that so important? And what does um, John Baylor's proclamation do to their efforts? Sure, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about uh, enslavement in the Southwest at this point, uh, there were very few black slaves in New Mexico at this time, um, fewer than 100, and fewer than 100 um, free, you know, free black people or enslaved black people. Um, most of those who were enslaved were enslaved to US Army officers who were Southerners, right? So uh, the US Army before the war was made up of both Northerners and Southerners and Southerners often brought their enslaved men with them. And so this is where you get those numbers, which is really interesting. But most of those men resigned from the Union Army or from the US Army uh, after Fort Sumter and they go east and volunteer for the Confederate forces. Uh, and they usually took their enslaved people with them. Um, although then a couple of them brought them back uh, with the, in the Confederate Texan invasion. Um, but remaining there were all of these US Army regulars and all of these forts throughout the Southwest. And once the, the head of the Department of New Mexico, which is this guy, E.R.S. Canby, who his wife called Richard. Um, so that's how I refer to him in the book um, because his wife, Louisa Canby, is a major figure. Um, he started to kind of bring them all together. He told them to abandon the forts in mostly in Arizona uh, so that those men could come to the Rio Grande because he felt fairly sure, although he didn't know that a, a Confederate invasion would be coming from Texas, that kind of far Western edge of the Confederacy. And it would either be coming up the Rio Grande or it would be coming up the Pecos River. So he wanted all those troops to be there. So, so by the summer of 1861, he had about 4,000 men, which again, that doesn't seem like very much compared to the East, right? I mean, in the East we have yeah, armies of, hundreds of thousands. But we're talking about an area where there's a hundred thousand people. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a concentration of troops that no one has ever seen before in this region, because as readers will find out in the book, the Southwestern desert is not the best place for large armies to be fighting one another. It's actually the worst. The possible. war. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, this is not a, an area in which you want to engage with huge amounts of people. Um, and so for that region, those were huge numbers. Um, at the point that Camby was bringing his people in, John Baylor, uh, who you referenced just now, had already arrived um, from San Antonio. Now, Baylor was a rancher. He was a slave owner. He was a pretty rabid Confederate, uh, former state legislator. He was a lawyer. He did lots of different things, and he had a lot of big ambitions. And he brought cavalry out along more than 600 miles of road from San Antonio to El Paso. And his orders were to just stay in El Paso and just establish control of, of Fort Bliss, which had been a, a federal fort before um, basically Union troops in Texas just sort of surrendered and left. Um, so he had control of Fort Bliss. He was supposed to just stay there and he did not uh, because Baylor was a guy, again, very ambitious, very paranoid. Uh, he heard that Camby's men were coalescing along the Rio Grande. He was afraid that he was gonna get attacked. So he decided to make the first move. So he actually crossed into New Mexico territory and invaded the North in the first invasion <laughs> on the North of the war uh, at, with no orders. That was totally just his idea. And was able to take the town of Mesilla, was able to force the surrender of 400 troops at Fort Fillmore. 
and then sat down on August 1st and created the Confederate Territory of Arizona. So Arizona comes into being as a Confederate Territory uh, in August of 1861. It had a different shape than the one we know today. It was horizontal. Uh, so its northern border was at the 34th parallel and its southern border was Mexico. Um, and its eastern border was Texas. And then it, its western border was the Colorado River. So basically what, what Baylor had created if you look at it on a map, it just looks like a nice little kind of thoroughfare from Texas all the way to the border of California. And that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted to, the troops that were coming behind him from Texas to be able to just stop in Mesilla and then march all the way west to California. And get that gold. Get yeah, that gold. That gold. And those Pacific ports. They needed the ports to ship out their cotton. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Um from the Confederate point of view, leads me perfectly to my next question. From the Confederate point of view, we know that blacks, black slaves are viewed as property. Um, the Supreme Court said so. They said so. This is what this war, they're going to war to, to fight for, for the right to continue to call them property. Um, how did they view those who were indigenous? Um, did they view them as potential slaves, as potential laborers? Would they be freemen if the Confederates could capture all this territory as they started to do? I think that that definition was really in flux at this point. Um, initially, I think the Confederates wanted to make alliances with indigenous peoples, and they did in fact make alliances uh, with several of the, the tribes in Indian territory, which, by the way, when you were talking about border states before, I think we could really benefit from thinking of Indian territory, which is the state of Oklahoma as we know it today, and New Mexico territory as border states, as border areas, um, because they, they really were, and they had a lot of the same elements, um, a system of enslavement, a divided population, you know, potential really to go either way. And of the, the five tribes who were living in Indian territory, um, you know, all of them were divided. Some of them allied with the Confederacy and some with the Union. And uh, all had traditions of slaveholding also. Uh, so the Confederacy was very interested in establishing control of that region because of course that area was quite vulnerable to Union attack. Um, and so there, there wasn't any particular, when Baylor went and, and then when Sibley followed with his 3,000 Confederate Texans, there weren't any explicit orders about what to do with indigenous peoples. So I think they had kind of free reign to do what they want. Baylor initially uh, in West Texas met with some leaders of some Apache bands and made agreements with them, which were broken almost immediately. Uh, and by the time he got to Mesilla, he, he had a, a past of riding out against Comanches with uh, a kind of proto-Texas Rangers group. And so he had no hesitation about actually uh, seeing Native peoples as enemies, as in this three-cornered war, right? Where there are, the Union is the enemy, but Apaches in particular are also the enemy. Another perfect segue to my next question. What did the people in the far West want? Let's, let's mm -hmm. take our lens and, and um, instead of, again, looking at this from the Confederacy and the Union and outwardly, let's take it again from the indigenous people who were there. 
if you could be, I mean, I'm, I'm creating a, a scene that probably didn't exist, but if you could put them at the kitchen table and they're sorting out their bills and they're sorting out this war and they're getting their newspapers and seeing what's happening between the, the, the two um, warring factions and they could, and you could hear them right now talking about, boy, we hope this side wins, boy, we hope that side wins. Where do their allegiances start to lie? Well, I think it depends on the indigenous community. Um, some had a longer history with warfare, uh, with actual U.S. troops, um, sometimes with Mexican nationals, northern Mexican communities. Um, other groups had alliances and, you know, fairly cordial relationships with the people moving through their territories. I think most indigenous communities just wanted everyone to get out, right? They wanted their their own territorial borders to be the way that they had been uh, in the years before, particularly before Anglo-Americans arrived, uh, because they were the ones who came in much larger numbers and they established uh, much larger, both military garrisons and also towns. And so their, their approach then, if the Americans in particular were not going to leave, then they had a couple of options, right? They could form alliances, they could have a diplomatic relationship and establish treaty relations to, to affect some kind of peace, which they had a history of doing. Um, and actually Mangus Coloradus, who is one of the major figures in the book, was very good at this. He, he was a leader of his people for a very long time and he established uh, his leadership by kind of speaking to the moment, right? So sometimes, uh, he made deals. Sometimes he attacked wagon trains and U.S. Army outposts and, and mining camps. And uh, at this point, he had already declared a kind of full-out war on Americans um, because they were just pouring into Apacheria, their homeland, and uh, they needed to defend themselves and defend their communities and their sovereignty in their own homelands. Um, so that's what they wanted. Hispano-New Mexicans, I think, they also wanted to kind of protect their own uh, farmlands and their own communities. Uh, but they also, they wanted to protect them from indigenous peoples. They had a very long history of violent engagements in terms of raiding and then also warfare uh, with Apaches and with Navajos. And so they were interested in protection along those lines from US troops. And so they're very interested in allying themselves uh, with the union at that point. What's interesting is that they, the Confederates actually believed that Hispano-New Mexicans, and there were about 50,000 of them at this time, believed that they would come with the Confederacy because they thought, well, they've only been, you know, citizens of the U.S. for 10 or so years uh, and, you know, don't have a particularly good relationship with the federal government. Um, they're still a territory, right? And, but they had forgotten that Texas in 1841, when Santa Fe and, and New what we now know of as New Mexico was still Northern Mexico, um, a group of Texans had invaded and tried to take Santa Fe, which they believed was their right um, because they had fought their own rebellion against Mexico and established themselves as a Republic. And they felt like Santa Fe should have been within their territory. And all of the, the Hispano communities along the Rio Grande kind of that, that invasion failed. And most of that group of Texans, if they didn't die along the road, had been captured in Santa Fe. And then they were marched south along the Rio Grande, all the way to Mexico City as prisoners of war. 
And so they went through all of these communities and the Hispano New Mexicans who were living in this region had a very, you know, long memory and they remembered the last time the Texans invaded and they were not too happy about it. And so if, I, I think it's interesting to think about, you know, if the Confederates had invaded with an army that had not been 100% Texans, uh, I wonder if their response would have been different. Um, because there were Hispano New Mexicans who did throw in with the Confederacy, uh, many of them what were referred to as Ricos, who are wealthier landowners, um, who were also slaveholders. Um, and then they ultimately kind of fled with Sibley and his men during the retreat. But, you know, most Hispano New Mexicans kind of threw in with the Union because a, that old enmity against Texans, and then also because they really saw in the Union fight something that would benefit them and their communities. So please forgive me for asking you to sum up not only your 225-page book, but, but your decade probably of research into all this, but with this kind of very simple question is, if we, could, if we can sum up how the Far West impacts the Civil War, um, you know, when, the, when, when um, you know, the surrender happens at Appomattox and you could kind of just put it out, okay, this is the impact that the Far West had on the way this war comes out. How do you sum that up? Well, I think militarily, the fact that Union troops in the region were able to push the Confederates back and that the Confederate invasion did not succeed was very helpful to the, the Union in the field because they didn't have to throw a bunch of soldiers out there. They didn't have to devote a lot of money uh, to further defending the region. Um, they could kind of say, okay, we've established control. The Confederates will probably not come back, but we'll keep some men in the region just to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but it kind of freed them up, right, to uh, continue to fight the war in the Trans-Mississippi in the East um, in, with, with their full attention, basically. Um, it also, when we think about because as we've talked about, you know, financing is important to warfare. Manpower is important to warfare. But what's also important is that larger ideal. And by the spring and summer of 1862, the Union and Northerners and Midwesterners could still think of this kind of future of the nation as including the West and, and involving this kind of vision of freedom. The Confederates, that dream died, right? They had wanted the West, not only for gold and Pacific ports, but also because they had this dream of an empire of slavery that extended from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And they thought, oh, okay, we're gonna beat the North. We're going to establish our own country. We're going to extend all the way to California. And then maybe we'll even start pushing South into Mexico and fight another, a second Mexican <laughs> war uh, and, and expand into really a hemispheric empire slavery. That was the dream, right? But by the spring and summer of, of 1862, when they failed at that, that dream died. And that's very interesting. And I know that I'm arguing here for, um, it, it's a kind of direct effect, but it's almost an indirect effect, right? The fact that they, they lost this ability to think of the West and to have this future vision um, then goes on to, to shape the way that they fight the war. They're, no lot, they're not able uh, to ship their cotton out. They have to tax their people in kind. It creates a real um, bind for them economically, but also I think that psychological 
part of it is very important, that they no longer had that outlet. And they really were sort of trapped and surrounded by Union territories and forces. And as we know from so many of America's wars, every military has to have something to believe in, or yes. it's just a bunch of bullets. Um, I want to read a quote, a beautiful quote, um, from really towards the end of the book. Um, she writes very well, folks. This is a very well-written book. Um, and and this these couple of sentences here really knocked my socks off. So we've kind of looked at, we just discussed the um, the the Confederate perspective of how this thing wound up. But I want to look at this from the Union perspective, too. Let's read this quote. These struggles for power in the West exposed a hard and complicated truth about the Union government's war aims. They simultaneously embraced slave emancipation and native extermination in order to secure an American empire of liberty. What a sentence. Um, explain why you wrote that. Well, I think this is this is one of the things when we look at the the Civil War, or we look at any really well well known event from a really unexpected place. It can reveal new truths to us, right? So, when we look at the war from the Southwest, we see a very different Union Army. We see we don't see any Union Army of liberators, right? We see a Union Army of exterminators, and that messes with our whole notion of the Civil War is a just war, right? Um, usually the conversation about the Civil War in this country is North and South fight uh, you know, for emancipation on the one hand for slavery, on the other, uh, the Union cause wins, um, even though the lost cause of the South becomes quite dominant uh, in popular culture later, um, but similarly erases the West in an interesting kind of way. Um, but, you know, that, well, now I've lost my train of thought because I started thinking about the lost cause. But oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> That's the lost causes. That's, that, that's why they have the lost cause. Um, the, 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 <laughs> the, the question was the union, um, uh, the union simultaneously embraces emancipation but also native extermination. What a contradiction. Yes. yes. Okay. So we got it back. That, yes. We, I've, I've got it back. I'm fully back on track. So, um, but this, I think this is really why it's so hard to grapple with the history of the West and maybe in part why it's been erased from a lot of our histories is because it does mess with that idea of a just war um, by saying, and, and we can think of the union devotion. Well, sort of devotion in a uh, more of a material sense and not a faith sense, um, but to uh, emancipation and also to uh, native extermination or removal, they seem contradictory to us. But actually, one of the points I make in the book is that they were twin goals of a larger Republican ideal, which is that empire of liberty, that the empire of liberty necessitated both emancipation and native extermination and removal. And this continues to be the case in Reconstruction as well. And that just is, it's, it's very upsetting to people to realize this. It's upsetting to have this vision of Lincoln, uh, who even though his views changed on slavery and emancipation over the course of the war, 
uh, in a way that we perceive as, as quite admirable. He kind of ditches the colonization idea and fully embraces emancipation and black service in the army. Um, and then ultimately equality and maybe even voting as well. Um, he never changed his mind about uh, indigenous policy and US Indian policy. It was always part of his plan uh, to use military campaigns as well as kind of political treaty making in order to put indigenous peoples on reservations to keep them out of the way of American white progress. That before and after thing that I talked about earlier, the, the before cleaning and the after cleaning, the before war and after war, this civil war leaves behind civilization. You say in the book, empty lands are now populated. Where do we see evidence of the civil war today? I mean, it's interesting. Um, the most obvious, I mean, when we think of civil war sites in the West, um, you're thinking of sites of battle, right? Or sites of encampment. Uh, what's interesting, there's a lot of talk, of course, about where civil war sites exist in the East Coast, and that a lot of them have either been, a lot in Virginia in particular, which is the most kind of intensively fought space, have been paved over, you know, there are you know, mini malls on the, <laughs> the strip malls on the sites of, of major battles and encampments, and you can't really feel like you can access them anymore. Um, in the West, that's not the case. In the West, almost every single site of encampment or battle still exists and has been preserved um, and is either run by state historical societies or the National Park Service. The only place that has not is Valverde, uh, which is the very first, uh, the site of the very first battle between Union and Confederate troops. It was a Confederate victory in February of 1862. Uh, Valverde is on the ranch land that is currently owned by Ted Turner. Uh, so I have been, <laughs> I've been agitated. Ted Turner, if you're listening. Did you knock on the door? Yeah, yeah please consider uh, donating the battlefield of Valverde land uh, to either the state of New Mexico or the National Park Service, uh, because we would love to be able to access it because it is, it is really inaccessible. But all of these other sites have been preserved and the reason they have been is because of the nature of the Southwest, right? Uh, that the Southwest still, as you were saying, you've driven through it, it still is full of vast space um, between towns and you know, uh, ranch headquarters and things like that. And so there hasn't been the kind of uh, really intensive development by settlers as there have been in, in other places and other civil war sites. So, so those places still begin, but then there's also marks of war, you know, the fact that the Pacific Railway Act basically jump-started the construction of the, the Transcontinental Railroad. I mean, that, the very fact of that technological development and that material kind of symbol of federal power in the Western landscape, I mean, I think we can consider that to be a, a mark or a remnant, a remnant of, of the Civil War as well. But if Ted Turner gives that land away, how is he going to pay his bills if he just hands it off? Just... That's right. Little joke. I worry about him. I worry about Ted and his- You can't just give your land away. <laughs> um, uh, you're from Colorado, you said. Uh, what was it like for you to travel all through the Southwest doing this research? Um, 
what's it like to develop this new relationship with an area that you call home as a researcher? That was really fun. That was, you know, I had done a little bit of research before 2014, which is when I uh, launched my big four month research trip driving through the Southwest uh, from archive to archive. Um, it was great to just see the landscape and to see all of these places where all of the protagonists in my book, you know, there are nine of them, they're from different communities and they're moving in and out of the region and I'm crossing paths in different interesting sorts of ways. And I was able to drive basically all of those roads. Um, that's the other thing too. Like most of those pathways are still there, um, just in different form. You know, and you found those highways. And you found immersive study to be really important, even though you knew the land a little bit. Yes. I mean, I knew Colorado pretty well and I'd been to New Mexico a couple of times, but the research process brought me into different kinds of places. And I, you know, I'm an environmental historian. Uh, and so being in the landscape is very important for me to be able to just see where people were and, and understand more what their experience might have been in that space. And just as, as one brief example, um, reading through all of the records of the of Baylor's pursuit of the, the federal troops at Fort Fillmore, um, they had kind of tried to retreat across this 20 mile stretch of desert up and over the Oregon mountains. Um, on their way, they were trying to get to another federal installation uh, in that region, Fort Stanton, and Baylor pursued them and he was able to capture them because they really slowed down. Their wagon train like really slowed down after the sun came up. And I was trying to figure out why. I mean, I knew that the temperature was rising. It was July, you know, it was in the 90s. Um, so of course they're, they're kind of lagging. Everyone knows what it's like to try and move through space when it's 90 degrees um, in, you know, wherever you are. But I didn't understand because no one mentioned this in their records. I didn't understand until I was there that that 20 mile stretch of desert from the Rio Grande east to the Oregon Mountains actually moves steadily upward. It moves at about a two or 3% grade all the way to the Oregon Mountains, which then pitches up, right? So, and I'm a road cyclist. And so I understand that a two to 3% grade is significant when you are, you know, when you're not driving a car. I mean, I think you can still tell when you're driving yeah. a car, especially yeah. if it's a stick shift, you can tell because if you put it in neutral, you start rolling backwards on right. two or three percent, right? But I I had my bike with me actually, um, because I wanted to bike in a couple of these places just to get a better, a slower sense of of mm -hmm. uh the landscape. And so I biked the road that is basically kind of moves up and over that is parallel track to, to the one that the Federals took and Baylor took in pursuit. And it really was, it was, you were moving uphill the entire time. And so I was like, oh, well then of course, this is why they're slowing down. The wagons with the water were lagging very far behind. And so you have these soldiers who are, you know, increasingly dehydrated, it's hot, it's sunny, they get sunstroke, they fall off their horses. They can't, you know, and you can't defend yourself if you're, <laughs> you're in, a, in a group like that. And Baylor had the advantage of being in pursuit and on horseback and with no wagons and no civilians to drag with them. And so that just, that example really brought home to me how important it is to, to be in the places that we study, to, re to really truly understand them, which is why it was so painful uh, to not be 
any place in the past year um, while researching uh, my next book. So, uh, uh, can you imagine, or I guess you have imagined, what it is like to pull water for? A- all these people up a mountain. I mean, it's hard enough to carry a bucket down the street, you know. Um, what is the, qu- uh, you know, given we have an expert not only on the Civil War here, but, uh, but on the Southwest, where do you believe is the quintessential Southwestern place for an American to travel who may not be familiar with the terrain there? Um, many people know California. Many people may know parts of Texas or Chicago, um, maybe even parts of Denver. But where is the quintessential southwestern place for an American to travel who may not be familiar and who wants to learn what makes the Southwest tick? There's so many good contenders for that. Um, if you were going to go to a town or a city, I would go to Albuquerque. Um, I think most of the cities in the Southwest are really good examples of the um, the kind of interaction of communities that I was talking about earlier. Adobe itself, which is very distinctive building style in the Southwest, is an amalgam of indigenous and Spanish building styles. And so even just looking at the architecture gives you a sense of that engagement between peoples. Um, and also all throughout that landscape are irrigation ditches. Uh, without which farmers could never make crops grow in the Southwest um, unless they were just right on the banks of either the Rio Grande or the Gila or the Colorado. Um, I think the most significant side, if you know people are taking a driving trip through the Southwest and they want to stop somewhere really interesting, um, I think Apache Pass is the best place. Uh, it's technically um, called Fort Bowie, Uh, It's run by the National Park Service. Uh, It's just south, I think, of uh, Interstate 10 in uh, Arizona, just east of Tucson. Uh, And this is a site of several major battles um, between uh, U.S. troops before the war, Union troops during the war, and Chiricahua Apaches. Uh, It's also the only Apache Spring is still there. It is the only kind of and was the only natural water site within a 60-mile radius. So that meant that the road had to move through there. And you know that road had been pounded out by Apache peoples who had been trading in the region uh, and moving through that region for hundreds of years. Uh, and then it became the Butterfield Overland Mail Route. Um, so you get a really interesting history of transportation and communication at that site. And then you also get this military history uh, of multiple different kinds of engagements. And there are ruins of the 1862 fort that Carleton ordered to be built um, after defeating Chiricahua Apaches there in July of 1862, um, which was a definitive moment um, for that indigenous community and for the Union Army. And they also have the the ruins, the adobe ruins of a later fort for Bowie, um, which And it's just fascinating to be there and it's beautiful. And you can see why why different communities were engaged in control for that space. You you understand when you're there how pivotal a place it was in the Southwest. I don't wanna go too far here um, as we wrap this up in drawing conclusions or in drawing too many straight lines um, between the Civil War and today. But I do wanna ask, can we read Um, anything into um, the way the Civil War was handled in the Far West to the 
leftward trend that we have seen in the southwestern United States right now. Um, okay, Utah certainly is a reliably Republican state, but when you look at Colorado, New Mexico, New Mexico certainly a reliably Democratic state, um, Colorado um, almost as much so, and now we see Arizona uh, become Democratic in the most recent presidential election. Is there any conclusion to draw there? Is there any lasting legacy of the Civil War that's having an impact on the way these communities are moving today? Well, I think one of the things that the looking at the Civil War in the Southwest shows is how, how much people kind of wanted to be in these spaces, how kind of alluring they were aesthetically, um, how um, provocative they were in terms of, of making people kind of dream about a future. And I think the West continues to do this for a lot of people. And, and one of the major forces driving population demographics, I think in the Southwest is, is migration. And it can be migration across borders, but also migration, you know, within the United States. I mean, one of the reasons that Colorado, you know, growing up there it was a Republican stronghold. And my parents, I grew up in the Southern suburbs of Denver and my parents were literally the only Democrats, like in the entire unincorporated Arapahoe County, uh, which became very evident during, during election time. And now that whole place has turned blue. And part of it is generational, but part of it is because there was a huge influx of Californians um, you know, 20 years ago. And so people who are moving from Cal, and we're seeing this in the pandemic too, right? This very interesting thing where people are fleeing from particular places, especially California when it was having the pandemic and wildfire, wildfires, and they were going to Idaho, Montana, you know, parts of Colorado, they were, they were moving kind of eastward, which is interesting. We don't usually think about, when we think about the West, we think of that propulsive movement from east to west. And we don't think about the fact that the west is actually at the center of multiple migration streams that are coming from the south, from the west, um, and then also in, in some cases from the north. Um, so I think that, and you can see that in the Civil War, is that shaping all of those conflicts is a series of migrations um, of different kinds of people. Dr. Megan Kate Nelson, maestro of the Southwest and author, <laughs> and, and author of The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thanks. Certainly check out that book and also her fun, smart, prolific Twitter feed at Megan Kate Nelson, one of the friendliest people you meet on Twitter. Her website is MeganKateNelson.com. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.